in way of review, in the fourth chapter, if you recall, from verse 14 to the end, verse 16, it talks about how Christ has a superior position. The whole theme of that is Christ is superior than angels, than man, than, than uh, the priesthood of Aaron, etc. When we begin chapter 5, we begin here with talking first about the Aaronic priesthood. Now, as it opens, I want to mention to you that chapter 5, he starts talking about the priesthood of Aaron. Then he'll talk about the priesthood of Melchizedek. And then he skips over to chapter 7. And he starts talking about Melchizedek's priesthood and Aaron's priesthood again. Only in reverse order. Here Aaron comes first, then comes Melchizedek. When you get over to chapter 7, you'll find that he talks about Melchizedek first, then he goes back to talking about Aaron in reverse. Almost like a mini chiasm. Starts out with Aaron, he ends with Aaron. Melchizedek, Melchizedek. And then chapter 6, the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6, these are really a side trip. He stops talking about Aaron and Melchizedek And he starts talking to the people. And as he does, it's just interesting what he has to say. If some of the pastors, myself included, were to say that to congregations today, I'm afraid that they would get quite a bit of reaction. But yet Paul could get away with it, and we'll see why. Okay, let's look at it. Hebrews 5.1. And I've got it in both King James and New King James. And notice what it says. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for, uh, for men in these things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now notice that Aaron received his high priesthood by appointment. He was appointed to it. He actually had to take an oath when he became the high priest. And the high priest after that, even though it was pretty much hereditary, it was still by appointment. They still had to take an oath. And we find that Christ himself, before he could offer the sacrifices and all and have them accepted by God, there had to be an oath involved, which we'll come back to. Look at verse 2. Who can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also beset by weaknesses? Jesus was able to be tempted. He took your fallen human flesh after thousands of years of experience with sin. But he didn't take your bent to evil. He didn't accept that. He didn't, Adam chose to fall. Christ did not choose to fall. And so we find here, notice it says he can have compassion upon us because he knows what it's like to be tempted, to be tired, to be hungry, to be angry. All of these passions that come with life. 
Now, one thing I want you to notice in here is this word ignorant. If you look at the old King James, it uses the same word, ignorant. Do you realize that the Bible says that forgiveness of sins, he forgives our sins that we do in ignorance. But sins that we deliberately do, we have quite a bit of accounting to do for that. And he'll get into that. But notice that his sacrifice is for those things. We may fall out of passion. We may fall out of, uh, you know, we just felt overcome. Christ takes care of that. But when we deliberately say, I know this is what's right, and I'm bound and determined I'm going to do it my own way, and I don't care what the Holy Spirit wants. Ooh, you better watch it, because you're skating on thin ice when you do that. Those who go astray, notice that he was able to uh, bring compassion to them for that. And by reason thereof, he ought... As for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. The high priest had to offer a sin offering for his own sins because he's a fallen human being. He had to make sure he was right with God before he went into the most holy place to represent the people. But Christ didn't have to do that. Because Christ has never fallen, but Aaron had to, and his followers had to, the ones who succeeded him. Notice what it says in 5.4. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Now notice what the New King James says. And no man takes this honor to himself, but... He that is called by God, just as Aaron was. Similar. No man deliberately chooses to be the high priest. Now, that's the way it was at the beginning. But by the time you get down to about the time of Jesus, or just before then, under the Hasmonean uh, rulers, we find that they were buying the high priest's office. They were bidding for the job. They were doing favors, and sometimes they even got the high priesthood by murder. So that's how much it had degenerated. But that was not the will of God originally. Notice that he doesn't take it to himself, but the one who is above him appoints him. And who was it that appointed Jesus to that office? It was the Father, right? Notice what it says in 5.5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2.7. So it was the father who commissioned him to be the high priest. And that was quite quite a, a commission. Now he turns our attention from Aaron's priesthood. We now turn our attention to Melchizedek. Now, this man Melchizedek, when we reach chapter 7, we're going to talk about him more because there's a lot of interesting things about him. 
Notice what it says in 5-6. Here again, the first part of chapter 5 really goes along with what he's talking about in chapter 4. But now he's having a little change of, of perspective. Now he's starting to talk about the priesthood itself. And he starts saying in verse 6, as he saith also in another place, and again, he doesn't give the text because the text didn't exist at that time, the chapters and verses. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's a big question about this. I'm reading a book right now. The, there's a big theological argument. They say, well, he, how can he be a priest forever after Melchizedek? Melchizedek must have to be alive today, according to that text. Melchizedek must never have died, you see. And, but the thing is, it says after the order of Melchizedek, in likeness to Melchizedek. And notice he is quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4. That's where it's found. And this is back in the time of David, the Psalms. He's predicting, first off, he's talking about Melchizedek, which happened in the past. That's way back in Genesis with Abraham. And now he's projecting it ahead to the Christ, the Messiah that's coming. Look at verse 7. The New King James who in these days of his flesh, in plain words, well, when he was alive, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. We don't take that text seriously enough. You know what that's saying? That's saying in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was trying to make the decision whether or not to go through with it to the cross, he violently, out loud, he was crying out. He wasn't just passively, well, Lord, if it's your will, so be it. That is the way he was doing. He was crying out loud that God would let this pass from him. He did not want to die. And notice, it says, with tears, he was crying over this. Please, I don't want to die. I don't like nails and thorns. They hurt. You see, this was his humanity fighting against his divinity. This was his humanity fighting against man's fallen nature. Christ had, hadn't fallen, but his, that human flesh that he received from Adam. And notice what it says, him who was able to save him from death. Who was the only one that was able to save him from death? The Father. In plain words, Jesus is crying out to the Father, why do I have to go through this? Please, find some other way. Choose another one. How many of you have ever, see, ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Okay. In Fiddler on the Roof, Tevius says, 
I know we're your chosen people, but couldn't you choose somebody else once in a while? You know, there are some times when you don't feel like you want to be chosen, right? And here, Jesus is saying, Lord, please, isn't there some other way, somebody else that can do this? But notice it says God could save him. But God says there is no other plan. There's no plan B. There's no other way. That's why Christ battling against himself, battling against the flesh that Mary gave him, finally obeys. He gains the victory by obedience. He said, Lord, I don't know if this is going to be acceptable to you or not, but you said to do it, and I'm going to do it. Remember Daniel, when he was faced with the test of the food, all that unclean food there? And it says Daniel purposed in his heart. He set his mind, he set his heart that I'm going to do what is right because it is right. For no other reason but because it is right. We look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king says, I'll give you a second chance. We'll toot the horns again. And you all go down on the one, two, three. And they said, thank you, your majesty. We appreciate your willingness to give us a second chance. Our God is able to deliver us from that fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to that stinky old image. He said it nicer, you know. But we're still not going to bow down to your image. Ooh, what did that do to Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, it, it said he was a tad bit upset, didn't it? Is that what it said? It said he was furious. Nobody talked to the king like that. But they said even God can deliver us. We believe he will. But if he doesn't, we're still going to do what is right. We are still going to keep the commandments of God, no matter what. And in the book of Daniel, especially in that chapter, you will find commandments of God were being attacked. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Nebuchadnezzar was demanding that they worship the gods of Babylon. And he said, you will bow down to this image. That's the second commandment, you see. No, they say, we are not going to have any other gods. And no, we are not going to bow down to images. Doesn't that remind you of the last days that when you have a powerful uh, leader of Babylon who is both a religious and political leader? Religious leader? He, He was a religious leader. He was demanding worship, right? He was a religious political leader. And he was demanding that they all bow down and worship. And if they didn't, what was the penalty? (laughs) The death penalty, right? Doesn't Revelation say that there will be a death penalty attached to those who did not submit to the image of the beast and the beast power? 
You also notice in that another parallel, well, a bunch of parallels in it if you look at it, that Nebuchadnezzar, in doing this, was trying to elevate himself over God. He was challenging God when he said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? Ooh. Last time I remember, wasn't it Sennacherib's general who said to Hezekiah, and who is the God who's going to deliver you from the king of Assyria? And the next day, he woke up and 180,000 of his men were dead. God is able to fight for his people. And so we find here, Jesus could have called 10,000 angels down. And God would have sent them. Christ himself would have commanded them. Don't forget, he's still the commander-in-chief of the armed forces of heaven. Yes, ma'am. Why do others have to suffer for the mistake of one individual? Well, for one thing, they were on the side of Sennacherib who was uh, uh, attacking the people of God. It's true that the innocent will suffer because of the wicked deeds of the wicked. Um, I think of the German people. The German people suffered greatly because of the sins of Adolf Hitler, you see. And even the Jewish people, they suffered through the centuries because of the sins of their leaders, you see. And why does God do this? I can't answer that or I'd be God. The thing is that, you know, it takes more courage to face death nobly. And when people see the way a person faces it, it apparently has a converting experience on others. God has a reason for everything. And as we look at this, even Christ, he had a reason for it. Now notice here again, remember what I said in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Trinity was being violently torn apart. First time in all eternity, Jesus and his Father had always been one. I mean, they, they were har- in harmony all the time. And Jesus volunteered to come down here. But he also took an oath that he would be faithful. In order for him to be high priest, he would have to suffer death, a violent death. And now his humanity is saying, I don't want to do that. And so we find here the son is crying out with tears to the father. Can you imagine? You you can put yourself in Jesus' shoes, perhaps. But can you put yourself in the father's shoes? How many of you are parents? When your kids start crying out, please, please, it tears your heart sometimes. But you, you have to say, no, there's no other way. And we oftentimes talk about how Jesus suffered on the cross, which he did. 
But don't think for a moment the father wasn't suffering. The father was also feeling every nail that went into Jesus. But he had to back off and a cloud come between them because Jesus became the collective sin for the world. And sin cannot remain in the presence of God or it will be consumed. Jesus would have been consumed if God had not backed off. It was an act of love on his part. But for Jesus, it was heart-wrenching. That's why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me all alone? His heart was breaking. He was feeling the separation of the sinner when he is torn away from God and eternally separated from him. He was suffering the, the second death. And notice this, because he did go all the way through death, it was hard because of his godly fear. He loved God. He wanted to serve God. And the fear that came across him was overwhelming. Look at what it says in Hebrews 5.8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. It's when we suffer sometimes, it teaches us lessons we would never understand otherwise. Oftentimes, we come out stronger after we have gone through a bitter experience. A bitter experience can actually crush a weaker person. But a person who trusts in the Lord, they may have gone into that experience weak, but when they come out, their faith is solid. Their courage is solid. And I've had many people who've gone through very trying situations, and they say, I would never have had it any other way. That's an amazing statement. Look at Job. Job went through a terribly bitter experience. But when he came out of it, he was twice as blessed as he was when he went into it. And so we find here that it was through his obedience that he learned lessons that would help him as our high priest. Notice what it says in verse 9. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Just as Christ obeyed the Father, he wants us to obey him. What is God looking for in these last days? He's looking for an obedient people. He will save them from their sins, yeah. But he also wants a people who will obey him. Who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. And he will help them to overcome sin. When Christ is coming, he's coming for those who are overcomers. Now notice interestingly, it says that he is the author of of eternal salvation. He's the one 
that put it all together. He's the one that bore not only the planning of it, but also bore the burden of carrying it through. And notice it says that he was perfected. Now, how can you perfect something that's perfect? Well, let me put it this way. When a baby is born, you know those cute little bundly things, and they are so cute. They go, goo-goo, da-da, mama. And you say, oh, he's a perfect baby. You know, he may be messing his pants. He may be crying at 3 o'clock in the morning, but he's a perfect baby. You know, when he's 35 years old and he's going, goo-goo, mama, and he's messing his pants and crying at 3 o'clock in the morning, do you call that a perfect child or do you call that a handicapped child, right? You see, he may have been perfect at that stage in his life. But at 35, if he's still doing the same thing, he's handicapped. Spiritually, the same thing. When you first came to the Lord, you may have had a wonderful experience with the Lord, but the Lord expects you to grow. If you haven't had an experience with the Lord in 35 years, spiritually, you're handicapped. And he's going to touch on that very shortly. You see, you need to grow up. You need to mature in your Christian experience. And Paul's going to tell us that in no uncertain terms. Let's, let's look at this. And it says that he was perfected. So perfection is if you're what God wants you to be at that particular stage in your life. And the, the Bible says we are to be perfect even as God is perfect. Well, does that mean we're all to become gods? No, that's impossible. What it means is we are to be what God wants us to be in our sphere as God is everything that God should be in his sphere. In plain words, we have reached maturity at each level. With a child, he may be a perfect child as an infant. He may be a perfect adolescent, maybe a perfect teenager, he may be a perfect adult. But when he, as an adult, reverts back to teenage habits, he needs to grow up and mature. And so he's, he's bringing out some interesting lessons here. Look at Hebrews 5.10. It says, called of God and high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, called by God and high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So we find that he is like Melchizedek. Well, well, later on, he'll talk about Melchizedek and find out what he was like. But again, he's referring to Psalm 110, verse 4. Now comes the third warning. Here is where he starts going off on a tangent. Up to this point, he's been talking about Aaron and his priesthood. He's been talking about Melchizedek and his priesthood. Now he drops those subjects till he gets over to chapter 7. 
And then he goes into sermonizing. He says, the problem with you people is you're dull of hearing. You know, my hearing is getting worse. I'm going to have to get hearing aids. There are some advantages, however. Sometimes I really don't choose to hear what people say. When we get to chapter 5, verse 11, notice what he says. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Now, is he saying it's hard to understand? He's not saying it's hard to understand. He says it's hard to understand because you're not listening. Whose fault is it? Is it the scripture's fault? Uh Uh-uh. It's because we don't have our hearing aids tuned. Okay? He's saying it's difficult to understand because you're just not with it. I wonder, could he be talking to me? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God or the teachings of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. What's he saying? He's saying by now you have come to know the Lord. You should be over here growing up. But you know what? You're still on pablum. When you should have moved on to the important, deeper topics of the scriptures. Do you realize that most churches today do not talk about the priesthood of Christ? I know before I became an Adventist, first off, I was in college and I had never heard of the second coming of Christ. And I had been the youth leader in a major denomination. I had been brought up in two major denominations. I had never heard of the second coming of Christ. But even that, I never heard of where he went. I never knew what he was doing in heaven. I didn't understand anything about his priesthood and how that applied to me. In plain words, I was still thinking about the milk. You know, let's all be happy and love one another and be friends and good people, and we'll all go to heaven someday. That's not only milk, that's slush. I mean, that's fluff. And what people want today from their Bible studies, is warm fuzzies. But he's saying, I want you to understand the deeper things. And so, he says, we need to get off of the pablum, we need to get off of the baby food, and we need to get into adult food. Now, he's talking about all of this in the context of the priesthood of Christ. In plain words, We need to start studying the priesthood of Christ. And I dare say to you that I really don't know of any other denomination that really gets into the priesthood of Christ simply because I don't know any other denomination that's preaching about the heavenly sanctuary, you see. 
the sanctuary message. Who officiates in the sanctuary? It's the priest, right? The high priest. And if you look at the heavenly sanctuary, you've got the whole gospel outlined in it. And so we find that the gospel message is found in the sanctuary message, but the sanctuary message also has with it a judgment. And a lot of people don't want to be judged today. You know, judge not lest you be judged. Well, you know what? The scripture says we are not to judge people's motives, but we can judge their actions. We find that in Corinthians, you know. And the Corinthians had had a, a situation of a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul said, look, either you take care of it, or when I come, I'll take care of it. And I will deliver him over to Satan. And we need to pray that he will repent and come back again. But you see, we are called to judge actions, but not motives, you see. And so we find here, he starts talking more about spiritual food that's ahead. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. In plain words, there are those who don't really spend time with their Bible. They really don't understand their Bible because they're not studying it. There's a difference between reading your Bible and studying your Bible. Some people study the Bible just so that they can sound smarter than everybody else or that they can prove you wrong, you see. And they pick and choose different texts. That's what it's saying. It's saying there's a difference between Bible reading. You know, I think I'll read Genesis through Revelation. Boom, 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 boom. That's fine. You can read it that way. That's good. Gives you a nice general overview of the Bible. But if you want to really understand a particular topic, you have to use the Bible method. Here a little, there a little. Comparing line upon line, precept upon precept, and compare this text with that text, and let this text explain that text. And that's studying your Bible. Many people try to say, oh, the Lord's Day, it's a certain, this day or that day. You can't tell by that one text because it's the only text in the Bible that uses it. You see, that way, that particular phraseology. And so you need to be sure that you have more than one text that's telling you something before you go build a, a whole church around it or a doctrine around it. And so we find here, it says they're unskillful in the way they use the Bible. And he calls that milk. Now, it's very interesting that he's calling these people babies, but look at some of the topics that he's going to say is baby food. And he'll get into that in the next chapter. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, those who are grown up. That is, those who by reason of use 
have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In the Garden of Eden, what did the devil say? God doesn't want you to know the what? He doesn't want you to know good and evil. Right? Well, you know what? God says if we know the scripture, we will discern what is good, we will discern what is evil, and we will choose the good over the evil. The devil has a counterfeit for everything, don't forget. And uh, he goes out of his way to make sure. Now, tonight, this chapter is a shorter one because he's going to take a side trip in chapter 6. Would you mind if we get into chapter 6 tonight? Because yeah, I know this is chapter 5, and it, we've got, we've, we're done early. I don't want to keep you late, but we're done early with that chapter. But look at, what, what have we learned tonight? First off, we just briefly reviewed the highlights of chapter 4. We found that Aaron and Melchizedek were high priests, and they're compared here. And because of his suffering and obedience, Jesus became perfected as our high priest forever. The Hebrews should have understood and taught these truths, but they were dull of hearing and needed to be taught themselves. How many people have been in the church for years and they're still operating on a, uh, an elementary level? I remember a lady I used to know upstate, and she used to say, well, some of us have been in the way for 50 years. Well, you know what, folks? I think it's time to get out of the way. <laughs> get out of the way and let somebody grow, you know? But they were dull of hearing and needed to be taught. The subject of Christ's high priesthood is to be understood by his people today even more than it was then. This is a present truth for our time. To understand this message and how it applies to the judgment because the judgment affects the second coming of Jesus, doesn't it? And it also affects who's going to go with him. It affects what's going to happen through the millennium. And so we find that these uh, build on one another. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but most of the prominent doctrines of Seventh-day Adventists begin with an S. Think of it. Second coming, sanctuary, uh, sanctified life. What are some more? Um, what? Sabbath, sure. What's another one? State of the dead, salvation. What are some others? You sit down with a piece of paper and start looking over all the doctrines of the church and most of them begin with an S. You see. And Satan, sin for, for instance, that's a doctrine too. The doctrine of sin. What is sin and what isn't. And so as we look at this Savior, uh, all of these things begin with an S. Why? Because they are based around our salvation. 
through Christ. Now, you know, I'm not saying that's the reason why they all start with an S, but it's just interesting to note that uh, situation. I'm going to skip the quiz for right now because I want to go right into chapter 6. And if we get through it all, fine. If we don't, because he's still talking in chapter 6 about maturity, right? He just told us we have to grow up. Okay, so let's grow up and see what he's talking about. As we look at chapter 6, it says that we are in need of maturity. Look at verse 1. And this is the old King James. I didn't have time to put the new King James on. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the dead works and faith toward God. In plain words, why should we every time have to talk about repentance and forgiveness and so forth? All right, you repented, you're forgiven, move on. Instead of going or spinning your wheels, move on and go on to perfection. And notice the doctrine of Christ. I've had people say to me, well, I believe in preaching Christ. I don't believe in preaching doctrine. You don't know what you're talking about. Because who and what Christ is, is a doctrine. What does the word doctrine mean? It means teaching. Do you realize that before medical men were called doctors, preachers were called doctors? So were mathematicians were called doctors. What they taught was their doctrine. If you are a doctor of mathematics, mathematics is your doctrine. If you're a doctor of chemistry, chemistry is your doctrine, you see. And so we find here that the doctrine of Christ is the teaching about Christ, who he is, that he's the divine son of God. Why should we be debating whether or not Christ was created or he he was eternal? We should have decided that and moved on a long time ago. Otherwise, we keep spinning our wheels. Now, notice what he else he calls baby food. It says here, the doctrines of baptisms. And notice the yes. There's a big controversy about that yes. Does that mean sprinkling and pouring, dunking? Uh, what does it mean, you see? That isn't necessarily what this is referring to. Should I be baptized? Should I be rebaptized? There were different things that people have read into this. I think probably you'll find most uh, theologians will say it's talking about being baptized by the Spirit and by the water. It's the Spirit. If the Spirit is really working on you, you will go to the water because you have learned obedience. God said to do it. You'll do it, you see. If you, if you love me, keep my commandments. You will follow my example. And the laying on of hands. When you lay your hands on a person, in most cases that is ordaining a person. 
When you, we ordain a person to ministry, we lay our hands on them. There are cases where they have laying on of hands for healing purposes, you see. But in most cases, it talks about uh, commissioning people and the resurrection of the dead. There are still people who are debating whether or not the dead stay in their grave forever or whether they come out. We should have just decided that. That's baby food. And believe it or not, the eternal judgment. There's a difference between eternal judgment and eternal judging, you see. But what happens in the judgment, and is that forever? And he considers this to be baby food. Look at what it says in verse 3. It says... And this will we do if God permit. He says, we'll talk about these subjects some more, but I've got more important things I want to talk to you about. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible. Now here, he's getting into, he's stepping on toes. He's getting into some pretty touchy stuff here. He says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift speaking of the Holy Spirit, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God, that's the scriptures, and the powers of the world to come. Now notice, here comes the clincher, verse 6. And if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they have crucified to themselves the Son of God, afresh, and put him to open shame. What is that saying? Does that sound like backsliding? But this text is more than backsliding. Backsliding, sometimes people just slip back and they realize they're wrong and then they, they come back, they repent. This is talking more than that. Notice, let, let me back it up again. And look at what's included in it. It says, for those who have been enlightened, those who understand the plan of salvation and have tasted of the heavenly gift, they have seen the Holy Spirit working in their lives. They understand the word of God. This is not ignorance. They understand what they're doing. And they were partakers of the Holy Spirit. Judas actually participated with Jesus in his ministry. He was there. He saw the miracles. And even when Jesus sent his disciples out uh, to perform miracles and heal, Judas went with them. He probably did some of them. He knew what he was involved with. And look at verse 5. And have tasted of the good word of God. He understood the word of God. He understood the scripture. And that it was good. And the powers of the world to come. He knew what was ahead. And yet he turned his back. If they shall fall away. Notice what it says. To renew again unto repentance. To bring them back to repentance. 
It's impossible, it says. Why? Because what is it that brings you to repentance? It's the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us to repentance. And you know what the scripture says? It's as we contemplate the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. So what are they apparently doing? They're apparently not looking at the goodness of God. They're rejecting the goodness of God in sending the Holy Spirit to them. And, you know, if you cut the telephone wire, the Holy Spirit can keep calling, but he's not going to get through. Right? Well, with cell phones, he might. But even then, chop down the tower, and he can't get through. And the Holy Spirit keeps calling you, and finally he says, well, I guess they're not going to answer. I'm going to stop calling. This is what it's talking about. This is not simply backsliding, but backsliding is the first step toward. It's, it's the step that leads toward the rejection of the Holy Spirit. We keep saying no to the Holy Spirit when he keeps pleading us to to come back, you see. And so this is a process. It's not necessarily a single event, although sometimes a single event reveals what's in the heart, as in the case of Judas. Judas was betraying Christ long before he was taken captive. He was already making deals to sell Jesus. He knew what he was doing. It was not by mistake. He was not ignorant. Notice in 6, 7 it says, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for men by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessings from God. It says, we receive God's blessings, even the rain. But you know, the Holy Spirit is compared with rain. Remember he talks about the early rain and the latter rain? The early rain is when the crop is planted. It's the early rain that enables that crop to generate. But as it grows... As it matures, the latter rain is poured out to fatten the grain for the harvest. You see? And so many people say, yes, so I came to the Lord when I was 12. And I remember those good old days when I was 12 and I came to the Lord. Oh, that's fine. That's what the Lord, that's the experience you had with him then. But where is your experience the days in between? And are you ready for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will fatten you up for the harvest? You see, when Christ comes again. And so, even as the earth drinks in the blessings of God, it's to fatten them up for the harvest that's ahead. Look at 6.8. But... That which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing those uh, whose end is to be burned. Now notice here again, 
the the tares they will be burned at the end of time. What's the judgment about? The judgment destroys the wicked by fire, right? When you burn up all the weeds, all the tares and the burrs, how much is left? They're just ashes, right? They don't keep burning forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. They burn up and they're gone. God wants to get rid of them. Why? Because he's going to have a new earth that won't have tares in it, you see. And so we find that he's telling us that we need to grow up and mature. You see how he's inserted this in between chapter 5 and chapter 7? He goes off on this, this lesson to try to tell us the essence of what Christianity is all about is to help us to grow up in our experience with Christ. Look at verse 6-9. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. In plain words, he's trying to give them encouragement. He's just spanked them. Just saying, you guys need to grow up. You're a bunch of babies. He says, but I expect better things of you. Even though I've had to talk tough to you, I'm doing it because I love you. God chastens those whom he loves. He spanks us because he loves us. So we don't grow up to be spoiled brats of weeds. You see? And so he's telling us this. The things that accompany salvation... He wants, he expects better things of us. And then in verse 10, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which he have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. He's commending them. He's saying, you've done a good job. God knows that you love him and that you have been serving him. Because you love him. But you're still immature. You still have growing edges. In verse 11. And we desire that every one of you. Do show the same diligence. To the full assurance of hope. Unto the end. In plain words. Keep doing what's right. Keep encouraging other people. Keep winning souls to Christ. Right to the very end. Don't give up. Remember, he that endures to the end, what? Shall be saved. Look at verse 12. That ye be not slothful, but followers of them through faith and patience who inherit the promises. What is he saying? Did you ever see sloth? I've seen, uh, in, you know, in zoos. But my understanding is, and I... I've been told this, and I think I've read it, that one of the problems with the sloth is it moves so slowly and so seldom that you can actually get moss growing on them. Are you a mossy Christian? Is moss growing on your Christian experience? 
Do you move so slowly? When the Lord says, hurry up! Do you ever, do you ever, have you ever been around somebody that just moves so slowly? You feel like sticking a pin in them. Come on, let's go, go, go. That's where I have to learn patience. I'm sorry. Anyway, but it says, in your Christian experience, don't be slothful. Don't be sloppy either in your Christian experience. But grow, move. Be followers of them through faith and patience. The word patience means steadfastness. That's what it means. It means because of your faith, hang in there. Hang in to the promises of God and you will see them mature. You will see the promises of God coming to your life. But the lazy people aren't going to see the promises of God. Because they're slothful. Look at 13. For when God made promises to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. When he made a promise to Abraham, he was going to inherit uh, all the land and he was going to have a son. It says that he couldn't swear by anybody else, so he swore an oath to Abraham by himself. When you go to court and you say, I promise to tell the whole truth, you know, the truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you say, so help me God. You're swearing by someone who's above you. But Christ was already at the top in the plan of salvation. And so he couldn't swear. He's the author of the whole sanctuary system. He's the author of the plan of salvation. The father turned it over to him. So he swore by himself. On his own integrity. Christ's integrity is at stake here. And he's saying, by my own integrity, I promise these things. Saying, surely, blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply you. Now, that doesn't mean you'll have a hundred kids. But what it means is that God will use you to reach a hundred people for the Lord, you see. And in God's geometry, you know, it isn't addition, it's multiplication. Okay? And notice in verse 15. And so, after he had patiently endured, get that, patiently endured, That's one thing I need and want and desire is patience. By nature, I'm an impatient person. Sometimes I say, Lord, give me patience, but hurry up. (laughs) Right? Are you that way? No, come on, Lord, can't you speed it up a little bit here? I want to be patient now, not later. But notice, after he had patiently or steadfastly endured. He hung in there. He obtained the promise. In plain words, the promise that was ahead of him was fulfilled. My friends, the coming of Jesus the first time was a promise way back in the time of Abraham. 
To us, it's called history. What we call prophecy is history that hasn't fulfilled yet. You see, the second coming of Christ is to us prophecy. But someday it's going to be history. And the word history is his story. It's the plan of salvation being fulfilled and worked out through human flesh. And the affairs of life because of Christ. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them who end the end of all strife. In plain words, when you say, I promise, I will carry it through. Do you know the Bible says that we really shouldn't take oaths and we really shouldn't make promises unless we are determined to carry it through. So many people make a habit of making promises and taking oaths. By such and such, I will do this. Well, he says, don't, don't get yourself in that foolish situation. If you make a promise, unless it's an unwise promise, you've got to be careful of that. But if you make a promise, even if it's to your hurt, you need to carry it through. I made a you know, financial decision a couple of weeks ago. And then afterwards, I thought to myself, oh, this is too much money. I can get it cheaper over there. But I made a commitment. And my scotch blood really began to, to get to me. Why are you spending all this money when you don't have to? But you know what? I made a promise. I had to carry it through. And parents, be careful that you don't say to your children, well, uh, if you do this, I will give you that. And then later on you say, well, I will, no, forget it. I'm not going to give it to you. If you promise, you better carry it through. You know what it will teach you? It will teach you not to make promises. It will teach you not to make foolish promises. If it's to your hurt. And so God tells us, keep it yes or no instead of taking oaths. But if you take an oath, you better carry it through. All right, look at verse 17. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirming it with an oath. Now, what's immutability mean? If something's immutable, what is it? You can't change it. Remember the law of the Medes and Persians? They couldn't change it. They could pass another law that, that would counteract it, but they couldn't change the law that was made. Okay? Immutability is unchangeable. And it says, wherein God willing more abundantly. Abundantly means a whole lot. But more abundantly is more a whole lot. Okay? Abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise doesn't say unto the unbeliever, but the heirs of the promise, the steadfastness or the uh, reliability of his counsel, and he confirmed it with an oath. 
And it says in verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. Can God lie? No, whatever he says is truth. If he says, my shirt is red, I don't care what you're looking at, my shirt is red. You know? Why? Because God had des- has designated that this color is red. I think it's, what is it, green? People who are colorblind, I have a grandson who's colorblind. And, uh, I mean, he could put on a blue sock and a, a red sock, and he doesn't know the difference. But, you see, God, whatever he says is truth, is truth for the simple reason that God said it was. Okay? That we might have strong consolation, that we may have the strong faith in God, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hopes set before us. Verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which endureth into that which within the veil. What is within the veil? That is where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where the presence of God is. That is the time of judgment, you see. And we can have the kind of faith that is an anchor that we will be accepted and that the promise that God gives is faithful that will take us right into the the presence of God. That's why I said earlier, we can come boldly before God. Through Christ. And then verse 20. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, where uh, that means where he went, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So just as Christ goes before the Father, he is our high priest forever, just as Melchizedek was a high priest forever. Even though he may be dead, his, his, the order of Melchizedek was a one-time priesthood. And Christ is a one-time high priest because of his death. He doesn't have to die again. He was sacrificed once. Why does he have to keep sacrificing? What does a priest do? He administers the blood. His own blood. He doesn't have to shed his blood every church service or every week. He's done it once for all time. And so with this, in chapter 6, he comes back again to the order of Melchizedek. And in chapter 7, he'll pick up with Melchizedek again and move back to Aaron. You see? So if this is a chiasm, We have Aaron here, Aaron there, Melchizedek here, Melchizedek there. And we have Christ, the high priest, right in the middle. The apex, the top, that's what the theme of this section is all about. Anyone have any thoughts or questions before we 
conclude. We actually got through two chapters tonight. Don't get your hopes up. That's not going to happen all the time. So let's look at the summary. Tonight we received a view of the highlights of chapter 5. Chapter 5, 11 through chapter 6, 20 are actually an aside or a a tangent that's interjected between chapter 5 and chapter 7. The author tells us, tells the Hebrews, that they needed to grow up in their understanding of the high priesthood of Jesus. The author of Hebrews considers subjects such as repentance of dead works, eternal judgment, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead to be elementary topics. And it goes on to say, once a person understands and accepts the high priesthood of Christ, then rejects it, it is impossible for him to repent because he has rejected the Holy Spirit. As you reject the Holy Spirit, you're also rejecting your lawyer in the judgment. Who's your lawyer? It's that high priest, right? So you are rejecting not only the Holy Spirit, you're also rejecting Christ and the role he is playing for your salvation. And the Hebrews needed Christian maturity. And this, I believe, is a message also for our time. We need maturity. We need to grow up into Christ. I do have time for a quiz, however. It would be wrong for me not to give you a quiz. (laughs) Question number one. The resurrection of the dead is an advanced Christian topic of study. True or false? The resurrection of the dead is an advanced Christian topic of study. Number two. A God of love rejects no sinners regardless of his acceptance of the high priesthood of Jesus and the failure to listen to the Holy Spirit. True or false? A God of love rejects no sinner regardless of his acceptance of the high priesthood of Jesus and failure to listen to the Holy Spirit. Number three. God is unjust to forgive sins. True or false? God is unjust to forgive sins. Number four. Jesus could not swear an oath by anyone higher than himself. True or false? Jesus could not swear an oath by anyone higher than himself. Number five. It is impossible for God to lie. True or false? It is impossible for God to lie. Now the bonus point. Chapter 6 actually, I left the word out, actually is an interjection between chapters 5 and 7. Chapter 6 is actually an interjection between chapters 5 and 6. Okay? Here's the answers. The resurrection of the dead is an advanced Christian topic of study. False. Remember, he said that's baby food. Okay. A God of love rejects no sinner, and you can read the rest of it. That's false. 
If you reject the Holy Spirit and the high priesthood of Christ, it can cost you your salvation. Number three, God is unjust to forgive sins. God is just to forgive your sins. God is not unjust to forgive your sins. He is just. Number four, Jesus could not swear an oath by anyone higher than himself. True. Number five, it is impossible for God to lie. True. Number six, chapter six actually is an interjection between chapters five and seven. True. Anybody get him all right? Hey, good for you. Did you get the bonus points right too? Good for you. Hey, some gold stars tonight. Okay. Next week, we read chapter 6. Actually, we read chapters 5 and 6 because they go together, okay? And then I want you to read chapter 7. You will find later on that there are a couple of chapters that kind of lend themselves to merge too. We'll talk about that later. But read chapter 7 ahead of time and see how it fits in with 5 and where we're going. And notice the chiasm that's being built, you know, with the different levels. Okay? And invite somebody to join us next week. Let's have prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for our high priest. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. And Lord, help us to grow daily to the perfection that you would have us to attain, the perfection of faith, the perfection of trust in you, leaning on your promises, never to reject the Holy Spirit, never to reject the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, that we may be faithful to the end and have a place in your kingdom. Now bless us as we go our separate ways tonight May the Spirit of God go with us. In Jesus' name, amen.